This is the official Sasta podcast reporting back for another week with me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings with two B's on Snapchat and brought to you by the one and only Jason Lemkin, always posting the most educational and entertaining tweets from at JasonLK on Twitter. Now for the show today, and we return to the world of SaaS investing and welcome Ashu Gog to the hot seat today. Now Ashu is a general partner at Foundation Capital, whose portfolio includes the likes of Uber, Lending Club, AdRoll and Netflix, just to name a few. As for Ashu, at Foundation he's led investments and naming just a few of them here, in the likes of Conviva, Localytics, and TubeMogul, later going public in 2014. Prior to Foundation, Ashu was the general manager for Microsoft's online advertising business, and you can follow Ashu on Twitter, at AshuGog. But before we head into the show today, I want to tell you about WePay. WePay helps online platforms increase revenue through integrated payments processing. Constant Contact, Equid, and GoFundMe use WePay. Why? Because WePay uniquely helps platforms offer ROI-positive integrated payments to their users within their UX and without taking on fraud and regulatory exposure. Others make you trade off between UX friction or fraud, not WePay. WePay also offers award-winning support and can even work with your team through Slack or Zendesk. Get the payments revenue you want without getting bogged down every time a user has a payments question. But don't trust me, visit wepay.com forward slash Harry for a video case study on how Equid grew its revenue while better serving customers with WePay. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. You'll also be made eligible for a year of free premium support with wepay.com forward slash Harry. But enough from me, so I'm now thrilled to hand over the mic to Ashu Gog, general partner at Foundation Capital. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Ashu, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A big hand to Jason Lemkin for the intro. But thank you so much for joining me today, Ashu. Thank you very much for having me with the show. I'd love though to kick off today with a little bit about you and how you went from being the 11-year-old solving a Rubrics cube in 25 seconds, can't quite believe that, to being a GP with Foundation. <laughs> well, you know, I was I was a very nerdy kid growing up, a very introverted. I spent most of my childhood either reading or solving puzzles, and the Rubrics cube was sort of one of those. My life really changed when I got into an engineering school in India called IIT, and I went from being a super nerdy kid who thought I was sort of one of a kind to being surrounded by other very nerdy kids. And somehow in that, in, in that world, I just flourished. And I, I became very involved in a variety of extracurricular activities. And coming out of IIT, I decided I wanted to get into the world of business. I started my career at Unilever. My claim to fame at Unilever was I set up Nepal. And the only reason they gave the job to a 22-year-old is no one else wanted it. Nepal was, you know, smaller than Palo Alto in terms of revenue. So, so that was that's where I started my career. I went on to McKinsey, where I helped set up the practice-serving software companies for McKinsey, then went on to Cadence Design Systems, Microsoft, where I ran field marketing for the software businesses, and then eventually went on to run a large part of the ads business. Uh, and I left Microsoft with the idea of doing a startup, and I'd done a startup in between once before as well. I sort of skipped through some of that. Uh, but I was looking at a variety of startup ideas, and in the process, met a bunch of VCs, including Foundation, in my effort to raise money. I could raise money from foundation, but the firm said, hey, you're kind of an interesting guy. Why don't you come hang out with us? And the rest is history. But I do want to start today. You've uh, scaled businesses internally, as you said there with Microsoft, and you've seen the scaling of many businesses with foundation. So let's start today with that. And what does it really mean to scale a SaaS startup? Let's start just with some basic metrics. When I think about a SaaS startup, the key metric I look at is what's the exit run rate revenue? So what people call ARR. And sort of the, the canonical example in my mind 
find is a startup that gets to a million dollars. And sometimes you get there in a year. Sometimes it takes two or three to find some basic product market fit. But once you have a million dollars in revenues, I start to think of the company as beginning to scale. In one, three, nine, 18, 35, 60, 100. To me, that's the pattern of scale. So triple, triple, double, and then growing sort of at 75, 80% thereafter. That's from a number standpoint. Do you agree with Jason Lampkin in saying when you're at one, it's inevitable that you'll get to 10? Well, inevitable at some point in time. I think the real question is, can you get to 10 in two years? Uh, and I think the companies that find product market fit and do it right are the ones that scale. What I see very often in SaaS startups is the one to two, the two to three, the three to four and a half, and you sort of bump along and you've found some small niche. Uh, and again, that's not a bad thing. It's just not a great fit for venture capital. Uh, But coming back to, so I think from a high level, as I said, the metrics are, I think about how do you triple, triple, double, double, and then grow at 75%. That to me is real scaling. The hard question is how do you get there? And what, what does it take to be one of those companies? And really what I find is it's three things. The first is really making sure that you have product market fit early. And what does product market fit mean? There's no one definition. Uh, The one I like to use is it's when the average salesperson can sell your product to the average customer. That's the point when you can scale both sides. If you have a product that really just appeals to early adopters, you don't really don't have product market fit. And if it takes a CEO to sell the product, that doesn't scale either. Would you suggest then that you need multiple salespeople in place before you can really determine whether you have product market fit though? Because often founders come to me and say, I've got product market fit, we've got repeatable revenue, and they've got one salesperson. You said they're about the average salesperson. Does that mean you need to have multiple before really believing it? I think so. I absolutely do. I have definitely seen companies with one incredible salesperson and they think they have product market fit. And to be honest, I thought they had product market fit. And a year later, I recognized that what they had was an incredible salesperson who could sell ice to the Eskimo. So the first is around sort of having product market fit. I think the second is really understanding how to take the product to market. Everything from generating demand to the process of driving the right insertion point all the way to sort of closing the deal. And in that sort of process, the two, I mean, there's lots of steps, but the two points that really matter is you've got to understand what drives dementia. Is it going to be an outbound process? Is it going to be something that you're really going to drive through content and you're going to have leads flow in. And there's no right answer. Just different products are amenable to different approaches to demand gen. And having clarity on what your model is is really important. The the second part of this bucket is this point of insertion. Long-term products will have multiple points of insertion and you will expand. And I'll come to the expansion of the third point. But you have to have a very clear point of insertion. And ideally, it's a single point of insertion because that's what salespeople need to be able to create a repeatable model. Uh, And the third thing is almost every SaaS company can get to 10 million in revenues through this point of insertion. And so I think that's when Jason talks about the 10 million. I think if you have the point of insertion, you have product market fit, you'll get to 10. You'll probably get to 20 or 30. Getting from 30 to 100 more often than not requires a clear strategy to expand. How do you upsell the account? Because if you're having to constantly acquire new customers to get from 30 to 100, that's generally a hard model. And again, there's no black and white answers. But if I were to summarize, it's three things. It's finding product market fit and truly finding product market fit 
market fit. Second, it's getting clarity on the entire funnel and specifically how are you going to generate demand and what's the initial point of insertion. And third, having a plan over time to go from the land to the expect. Can I ask, we're seeing the rise of customer success today. Do you believe that the customer success team should be involved in that third point of expansion and upsell? Absolutely. In fact, you know, I'm a big believer that early on, companies really should move to a model where they have sales driving new account generation, sort of sales are really the hunters, and you move the farming to customer success. Now, that requires a very different culture in customer success, and it requires embedding people with sales skills within the customer success organization. But I think having that clarity organizationally leads to a capital-efficient model. Is there not a danger of losing that trusted status as customer success if you are upselling, kind of intentionally trying to increase the internal account opportunity? So I think eventually everyone in the company should be upselling or acquiring customers every day. Salespeople who do that also have trust. I mean, the best salespeople are trusted advisors to their clients. I started, as as I mentioned earlier, I spent a significant part of my early career at McKinsey. Every person at McKinsey was in some shape or form selling. We had no salespeople. The consultants sold the business. And at the same time, the basis for our reputation was that we were trusted advisors to our clients. Mm -hmm. So I I see no contradiction between being a trusted advisor and being a salesperson. No, I I absolutely agree in terms of everyone selling. I do want to touch on an element, though, that I know you're super passionate about. And you mentioned in your own career being kind of a founder yourself. And that's first-time founders, first-time SaaS founders. So what do first-time SaaS founders need to know in order to scale their businesses as we've discussed through these stages? You know, I've, you know, a large part of my career at Foundation has really been in investing behind first-time founders and helping them make the transition from being either business people with an insight around a market or a pain point that leads to a company or being technologists with some technical insight, which they're translating into a product and then eventually into a company. It's a long list of things. Every first-time founder is doing every month the job they're doing, they're doing that for the first time. And so I think the, the number one thing I advise first-time founders is build an ecosystem of people you can trust around you who can help you think through every step. It could be as little as, I need to find a lawyer. How should I think about going with a storied Silicon Valley firm and they're going to charge me $25,000 versus this guy around the corner who works out of his garage who's going to charge me $500? It's a trivial decision at some level, but every one of these decisions adds up. And so the first thing founders, I think, need to do is to find a couple of people. And it can't be 10 people because you can't go to 10 people for advice and everything. But find two or three people that you really trust and who've been through the journey before that you can reach out to. Hopefully, I can earn the right to be one of those two or three people, but I have to earn that right as an investor. The second thing I would say about founders is founders approach every situation from sort of product first. That's the typical DNA for a founder. They've built a product. They're passionate about their product. In their own way, they want to change the world with the product that they've built. I think it's really important as part of finding product market fit for the founders to look at the world from the lens of what they're, where their customers are coming why every customer who buys your product is in some shape or form putting their career on the line. What is it that you are providing that will incent customers to put their career on the line? And understanding that and really understanding the essence of the value proposition from a customer standpoint, I think is really important for founders. Uh, The third thing I would say is every founder has certain strengths and certain areas that are flat spots for them. 
and taking a little bit of a step back and saying, look, these are the things I do well, and these are the one or two things I need help on in my company. Early on, it's very important. And, you know, some founders are incredible at product and engineering, and they're not great storytellers. And it's possible to supplement that, but you have to recognize that a successful founding team needs an exceptional storyteller. And if that's not you, you've got to find that person very early on. There's other founders who are incredible storytellers, but can't build a great execution machine. And if that's the case, they've got to then recognize that they need someone. And in many cases, that someone may be the CEO. They should step aside. But they need someone to build the execution machine to go from 1, 3, 9, 18, and so on. Do you think, do you think founders, you've worked, as you said, with many there, first-time founders, do you think founders can learn to be a great CEO, like Aaron Levy always says? Or do you think sometimes it's an innate skill that, that can't be taught? I absolutely think founders can learn to be great CEOs. The most successful startups have founders as CEOs through the life of their company or through a very large part of the life. That's true if if you go back to Bill Gates at Microsoft, you look at Google, you look at Oracle. Founder-led companies, when those founders learn to scale as CEOs, have something very special that is very hard to replicate with a hired hand or with an external CEO. None of those founders came into the job having a resume that said CEO. There's nothing on Bill Gates' resume that would say he is going to be an incredible CEO. Nothing on Mark Zuckerberg's resume that would have said he is going to be an incredible CEO. I think they learned that on the job. So if those are the things that they need to know and need to execute on, intrigued, where do you see most founders, first-time founders, that is, make mistakes? And what are the big challenges that they often come to you with? Are there kind of commonalities in their struggles? So first-time technical founders, the hardest thing for them is hiring business people. First-time founders, technical founders tend to be very good at sort of evaluating technical skills. They tend to hire very smart people. They tend to hire people who have a passion for the product they're building. And when it comes to hiring the first few salespeople, they flounder. And I see all kinds of patterns. I've seen in one of my companies, the founder hired an incredibly smart, a Mensa member as their their first sales executive. Really nice. Nice guy, really smart guy, really thoughtful, but just didn't have the hustle required to be the first salesperson. And, you know, you know, in the end, we were down to two people and the other person had way more hustle. But the founder looked at the two and said, you know, this other guy, he seems so sleazy. He seems like a sales guy. And I was joking with him. I was like, yeah, but that's what he is. And instead, you know, this Mensa member who was super thoughtful, who had an engineering degree, I think from MIT, was a person we went with. And that just didn't work. I mean, he's a great person. Wasn't the right person to be the first salesperson in a company like this. So that's one example of that mistake, but I see variations of that mistake very often with first-time founders. Staying on Uh, the subject, before we move on to another one, if you flip that and have a business-minded founder, maybe a consultant or an investment banker, what do you advise them in terms of building out a technical team when they maybe don't have the technical expertise to really assess the candidate pool? So I would say a couple of things. I'd say the first thing is getting your co-founder is really critical. And very often, business founders underestimate how important the technology component is. I mean, just yesterday, I was talking to a team, two very smart, very seasoned founders, by no means first-time founders, in fact, in this example, seasoned founders who both had a business background and a little bit of technical skills. And they're getting into a space that is very deeply technical. And and they came to me and said, look, we want to raise some money. We're going to go hire our engineering person. And I was like, guys, that's just not how it works. The kind of engineering person you're looking to bring on board isn't looking to be hired. They're looking 
to join the founding team. So I think first is just the acknowledgement of what it takes to attract a great person. Once you get to that point, once you acknowledge that, I think it's a bunch of mechanics. Four or five years ago, there was a founder I was helping who had a very strong business idea, but didn't have the technical skills to evaluate technical co-founders. And what I did was I put them in touch with a couple of my other technical founders who helped interview. One of them actually created a couple of tests that the, this other founder could use early on in the process of sort of getting to know technical co-founders. But it did require you to think about them as co-founders and not as employees. Coming back to technical founders, we talked about sales hiring as being sort of one of the hardest things for them to do. I think the second thing I would say is most technical founders underestimate the challenge of getting the first handful of customers. And this is even before really having consistent product market fit. Invariably, the first 10, 15 customers are putting a lot on the line in order to work with a startup. And from the founder's standpoint, it seems obvious. I have a great product. My product meets your pain point. You should buy it. And they're always puzzled when customers just don't buy. And it's hard for them to factor in the fact that there is people who are worried about their jobs. There is NIH in some cases. In some cases, there are political issues at, at work. In some cases, even when there's intent to buy, it can take months for the deal to close. Uh, very recently, I had an exceptional technical founder who was driving the sales process at, at a large company. And he came to me in late March and said, you know what? I have this deal. We've agreed on it. And I think we'll have a contract by the end of the month. And this was somewhere around 15th of March. And I was like, really? Are you sure? And he's like, yep, absolutely. I've gone through the steps. 31st of March, we're going to have the deal done. It's now end of June. We still don't have the deal done. And it's not lost. There's many a slip between the cup and the lip. I'd love to dive into a quick fire that we're going to call Ashu's 60 seconds faster. So a quick fire. So 60 seconds per statement. How does that sound? Go for it. So chatbots in SaaS, fad or here to stay? Absolutely here to stay. I think every single software application will have a voice or more broadly conversational interface as a core part of the user interface for customers. Biggest challenge for you with your role at Foundation? I think the hardest part for me is separating the good from the great. Getting from the average startup that's you know not really a fit for me to something that looks very good or very good is actually relatively straightforward. But at the end of the day, I only invest in two or three companies a year and separating those two or three from the 25 to 50 good companies I meet is hard. SaaS valuations today, frothy or fair? You know, beauty lies in the eyes of the beholder. If I could predict what valuations would be five, 10 years from now, I'd have a much easier job than the one I do today. So I don't actually know. What I do know is that if you get into a company that is scaling along the triple, triple, double, double metrics that we talked about, and you get in it ballpark something that sounds plausible that you can make money on, you will end up making money. Uh, so what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time with Foundation? When I joined the firm in my early years of venture, I spent a lot of time, most of my time, thinking about markets and products. And in some way, getting to know and understanding the founder was an afterthought. Today, I spent 75, 80% of the time really getting to know the founder. And I spent a lot of time developing for myself a framework of what makes for a great founder. And I, I wish I'd just done that five, seven years ago. What's secondary? Is it product or market? This is always a dilemma for me. I would say market. And then I do want to move out of the quick fire, though, so not to worry on the 60 seconds. But we mentioned changing founders there and the, the transitions that they need to make. If we translate that, 
that to translating stages and moving with the stages. How can you figure out what kind of leader you need for the stage of your company is at? And, and at what benchmarks do you see this really changing from the leader perspective? What are the inflection points for startups where the leader needs to change, where there's kind of key transformations internally in the organization of the startup? A great question. So I think the first inflection point is this notion of finding product market fit that we've talked about a couple of times. And from inception to finding product market fit, it really is about having clarity of product vision. And it's a leader who can really bring a very small team, a SWAT team, sort of a group of insurgents who are getting into a new market and very rapidly working through the process of iterating around finding a product. Those leaders tend to be very product-centric, very focused on what's the point of insertion that will get us into customers. I think once you find that product market fit, the founder CEOs need to evolve from being product-centric to spending time in the front lines with sales, getting to know how to build a sales process, how to incent and compensate salespeople, how to manage sales versus customer success. And, and it's, it's a real inflection point. A lot of founders love that transition. They thrive and flourish in it. They, they find it an intellectual challenge. There's others who say, this isn't for me. I think the third inflection point is when you get to somewhere north of $10 million, where at this point, you're now going from having a relatively flat team where you have one, maybe two levels of management, and you have relatively junior executives to now building a real executive team. You're hiring a seasoned CMO, you're hiring a seasoned VP of sales, and you're hiring executives who in turn want to build their own teams. And you get into a situation where you have multiple levels of teams in the organization. At that point, founders need to manage this very fine balance of how they really have their nose to the ground. The best founders know every metric in the company better than everyone else for a very long time. They can dive in and fix an issue four levels deep into the organization. But at the same time, they can't do that every day. If they start doing that every day and every problem, those executives that they've hired aren't going to stick around. And so finding that balance of how do I keep my hands on the steering wheel, my nose to the ground, and at the same time, empower executives who will help the company scale is, is an important inflection point. Can I ask you, at what stage of company development do we transition from jack of all trades to really specialists? I think it depends on the space. It's hard to generalize. I would say at some point north of a million dollars in revenue where you're starting to find product market fit, you want to start to have some level of specialization. So salespeople are going to be salespeople and it's unlikely that you can you can get product marketing or product people to sell at that point. First million dollars, it's all hands on deck. The best salespeople very often early on are the product managers. However, within the engineering organization, you probably still largely have generalists at that point. You don't have multiple crews. You probably have a, you know half a dozen, maybe a dozen engineers. So there's not a lot of specialization at the 1 million mark. By the time you get to the 10 million mark, you probably have 20, 30 people in engineering, sometimes more. And at that point, you're now starting to have multiple crews, people specializing in different parts of the product. Their team has more structure. And so you'll start to see a lot more specialization in north of $10 million, I would say. Mm-hmm. I, I but again, do, that's a gross generalization. I, I do want to finish, though, with, with one question that always blights me, and it's the ability for employees uh, to transition through the stages. Do you believe some employees are destined for certain stages, or do you believe there is this flexibility of movement within stage internally? I think there's absolutely flexibility. And at the same time, not everyone will make that transition. The best CEOs really recognize that they have to, on one hand, be compassionate and committed 
committed to making the people that have gotten this far successful and helping them sort of have the best careers they can. And at the same time, be ruthless about prioritizing the company ahead of anyone, including themselves. No, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. But but Ashley, as I said, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Jason said so many wonderful things. So I can't thank you enough for giving up the time today. Uh, thank you very much for having me on the show. So many fantastic takeaways there from Ashu. And if you love the show today and would like to see more from us, then you can follow Ashu on Twitter at AshuGog. And you can follow me on Snapchat at HStebbings with two Bs. Likewise, you can follow the main man, Jason Lemkin, on Twitter at JasonLK. I do also want to say a big thank you to Ashu for giving up the time today to appear on the show. It was absolutely fantastic. But before we leave you today, I want to tell you about WePay. WePay helps online platforms increase revenue through integrated payments processing. Constant Contact, Equid, and GoFundMe use WePay. Why? Because WePay uniquely helps platforms offer ROI-positive integrated payments to their users within their UX and without taking on fraud and regulatory exposure. Others make you trade off between UX friction or fraud, not WePay. WePay also offers award-winning support and can even work with your team through Slack or Zendesk. Get the payments revenue you want without getting bogged down every time a user has a payments question. But don't trust me. Visit WePay.com forward slash Harry for a video case study on how Equid grew its revenue while better serving customers with WePay. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. You'll also be made eligible for a year of free premium support with WePay.com forward slash Harry. As always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you Friday's episode with Max Yoda, founder and CEO at Lesson Lee.